Welcome to this week in surgery your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This week in surgery has you covered. Our podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the surgical field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With this week in surgery, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine, including in the operating room. This week in surgery we will be discussing articles published in October 2023 issues. First, Annals of Surgery. Left lobe first with purely laparoscopic approach, a novel strategy to maximize donor safety in adult living donor liver transplantation. Objective. Evaluate outcome of left lobe graft, LLG, first combined with purely laparoscopic donor hemihepatectomy, PLDH, as a strategy to minimize donor risk. Background An LLG first approach and a PLDH are two methods used to reduce surgical stress for donors in adult living donor liver transplantation, LDLT. But the risk associated with application LLG first combined with PLDH is not known. Methods From 2012 to 2023, 186 adult LDLTs were performed with hemiliver grafts, procured by open surgery in 95 and PLDH in 91 cases. LLGs were considered first when graft to recipient weight ratio greater than or equal to 0.6%. Following a four-month adoption process, all donor hepatectomies, since December 2019, were performed laparoscopically. Results there was one intraoperative conversion to open, 1%. Mean operative times were similar in laparoscopic and open cases, 366 versus 371 minutes. PLDH provided shorter hospital stays, lower blood loss, and lower peak aspartate aminotransferase. Peak bilirubin was lower in LLG donors compared with right lobe graft donors, 1.4 versus 2.4 mg DL, P less than 0.01, and PLDH further improved the bilirubin levels in LLG donors, 1.2 versus 1.6 mg DL, P less than 0.01. PLDH also afforded a low rate of early complications, clavindindo grade greater than or equal to 2, 8% versus 22%, P equals 0.007, and late complications, including incisional hernia, 0% versus 13.7%, P less than 0.001, compared with open cases. LLG was more likely to have a single duct than a right lobe graft, 89% versus 60%, P less than 0.01. Importantly, with the aggressive use of LLG in 47% of adult LDLT, favorable graft survival was achieved without any differences between the type of graft and surgical approach. Conclusions The LLG first with PLDH approach minimizes surgical stress for donors in adult LDLT without compromising recipient outcomes. This strategy can lighten the burden for living donors, which could help expand the donor pool. Propranolol normalizes metabolomic signatures thereby improving outcomes after burn. Objective and background. Propranolol, a non-selective beta receptor blocker, improves outcomes of severely burned patients. While the clinical and physiological benefits of beta blockade are well characterized, 
the underlying metabolic mechanisms are less well-defined. We hypothesize that propranolol improves outcomes after burn injury by profoundly modulating metabolic pathways. Methods In this phase 2 randomized controlled trial, patients with burns greater than or equal to 20% of total body surface area were randomly assigned to control or propranolol, dose given to decrease heart rate less than 100 bpm. Outcomes included clinical markers, inflammatory and lipidomic profiles, untargeted metabolomics, and molecular pathways. Results 52 severely burned patients were enrolled in this trial, propranolol, N equals 23 in controls, N equals 29. There were no significant differences in demographics or injury severity between groups. Metabolomic pathway analyses of the adipose tissue showed that propranolol substantially alters several essential metabolic pathways involved in energy and nucleotide metabolism, as well as catecholamine degradation, P less than 0.05. Lipidomic analysis revealed that propranolol-treated patients had lower levels of pro-inflammatory palmitic acid, P less than 0.05, and saturated fatty acids, P less than 0.05, with an increased ratio of polyunsaturated fatty acids, P less than 0.05, thus shifting the lipidomic profile towards an anti-inflammatory phenotype after burn, P less than 0.05. These metabolic effects were mediated by decreased activation of hormone-sensitive lipase at serine 660, P less than 0.05, and significantly reduced endoplasmic reticulum stress by decreasing phospho-JNK, P less than 0.05. Conclusion Propranolol's ability to mitigate pathophysiological changes to essential metabolic pathways results in significantly improved stress responses. Propensity score matched analysis of three-year survival of trans-carotid artery revascularization versus carotid endarterectomy in the Vascular Quality Initiative Medicare Link Database. Objective Carotid endarterectomy, CEA, remains the gold standard procedure for carotid revascularization. Transfemoral carotid artery stenting, CUS, was introduced as a minimally invasive alternative procedure in patients who are at high risk for surgery. However, TFCUS was associated with an increased risk of stroke and death compared to CEA. Background Transcarotid artery revascularization, TCAR, has outperformed TFCUS in several prior studies and has shown similar perioperative and one-year outcomes compared with CEA. We aim to compare the one-year and three-year outcomes of CAR versus CEA in the Vascular Quality Initiative, VQI Medicare Linked, Vascular Implant Surveillance and Interventional Outcomes Network, Vision, Database. Methods The Vision Database was queried for all patients undergoing CEA and CAR between September 2016 to December 2019. The primary outcome was one-year and three-year survival. One-to-one -one propensity score matching, PSM, without replacement was used to produce two well-matched cohorts. Kaplan-Meier estimates, and Cox regression was used for analyzes. Exploratory analyzes compared stroke rates using claims-based algorithms for comparison. Results A total of 43,714 patients underwent CEA and 8,089 patients underwent CAR during the study period. Patients in the CAR cohort were older and were more likely to have severe comorbidities. PSM produced two well-matched cohorts of 7,351 pairs of CAR and CEA. 
In the match cohorts, there were no differences in one-year death, hazard ratio, HR equals 1.13, 95% C, 0.99 to 1.30, P equals 0.065. At three years, CAR was associated with slight increased risk of death, HR equals 1.16, 95% C, 1.04 to 1.30, P equals 0.008. When stratifying by initial symptomatic presentation, the increased three-year death associated with CAR persisted only in symptomatic patients, HR equals 1.33, 95% C, 1.08 to 1.63, P equals 0.008. Exploratory analyses of postoperative stroke rates using administrative sources suggested that validated measures of claims-based stroke ascertainment are necessary. Conclusions in this large multi-institutional PSM analysis with robust Medicare-linked follow-up for survival analysis, the rate of death at one year was similar in CAR and CEA regardless of symptomatic status. The slight increase in the risk of three-year death in symptomatic patients undergoing CAR is likely confounded by more severe comorbidities despite matching. A randomized controlled trial comparing CAR to CEA is necessary to further determine the role of CAR in standard risk patients requiring carotid revascularization. Patient reported adverse events during neoadjuvant therapy in a phase 2 borderline resectable pancreatic cancer clinical trial, Alliance A021501 objective. We sought to evaluate symptomatic adverse event, A, rates among patients with pancreatic cancer receiving neoadjuvant therapy on clinical trial, A021501, using the patient reported outcomes common terminology criteria for adverse events, probe key. Background. To date, Pancreatic cancer clinical trials have measured ACE using standard physician reporting, common terminology criteria for adverse events, KIKI. Patient-reported symptomatic ACE have been incompletely characterized. Methods A021501, December 31, 2016, January 1, 2019, randomized patients with borderline resectable pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma did 8 doses of mvofurinox, ARM1 or 7 doses of mofurinox plus hypofractionated radiotherapy, ARM2, followed by pancreatectomy and adjuvant Fofox6. Patients completed pro-key assessments at baseline, on day 1 of each chemotherapy cycle and daily during radiotherapy. Results Of 126 patients, 96, 76%, initiated treatment and completed a baseline plus at least one post-baseline pro-key assessment. Diarrhea and fatigue were the only symptomatic grade 3 or higher A's identified in at least 10% of patients using KI. At least 10% of all patients reported an adjusted pro-KI composite grade 3 A during neoadjuvant treatment for 10 of 15 items, anxiety, 10%, bloating of abdomen, 16%, decreased appetite, 18%, diarrhea, 13%, dry mouth, 21%, fatigue, 36%, nausea, 18%, generalized pain, 16%, abdominal pain, 21%, and problems tasting, 32%. Decreased appetite was higher in ARM2 than in ARM1, P equals 0.0497. No other differences between study arms were observed. Conclusion 
Symptomatic ACE during neoadjuvant therapy were common and were reported more frequently by patients using probe key than were recorded by clinicians using standard key. Next article is from British Journal of Surgery. Prediction of postoperative complications after esophagectomy using machine learning methods. Background. Esophagectomy is an operation with a high risk of postoperative complications. The aim of this single-center retrospective study was to apply machine learning methods to predict complications, clavindindo grade FIA or higher, and specific adverse events. Methods. Patients with resectable adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus and gastroesophageal junction who underwent Iver-Lewis esophagectomy between 2016 and 2021 were included. The tested algorithms were logistic regression after recursive feature elimination, random forest, k-nearest neighbor, support vector machine, and neural network. The algorithms were also compared with a current risk score, the Cologne risk score. Results 457 patients had clavindindo grade FIA or higher complications, 52.9%, versus 407 patients with clavindindo grade 0, I, or 2 complications, 47.1%. After threefold imputation and threefold cross validation, the overall accuracies were logistic regression after recursive feature elimination, 0.528, random forest, 0.535. K nearest neighbor, 0.491, support vector machine, 0.511, neural network, 0.688, and Cologne risk score, 0.510. For medical complications, the results were logistic regression after recursive feature elimination, 0.688, random forest, 0.664, K nearest neighbor, 0.673, support vector machine, 0.681. Neural Network, 0.692, and Cologne Risk Score, 0.650. For surgical complications, the results were, Logistic Regression After Recursive Feature Elimination, 0.621, Random Forest, 0.617, K-Nearest Neighbor, 0.620, Support Vector Machine, 0.634, Neural Network, 0.667, and Cologne Risk Score, 0.624. The calculated area under the curve of the neural network was 0.672 for clavindindo grade FIA or higher, 0.695 for medical complications, and 0.653 for surgical complications. Conclusion The neural network scored the highest accuracies compared with all of the other models for the prediction of postoperative complications after esophagectomy. Next article is from Journal of Vascular Surgery. Multicenter transatlantic experience with fenestrated branched endovascular aortic repair of chronic post-dissection thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysms. Objective. This multicenter international study aimed to describe outcomes of fenestrated branched endovascular aortic repairs, FBFR, in a cohort of patients treated for chronic post-dissection thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysms, PDTAS. Methods. We reviewed the clinical data of all consecutive patients treated by FBFR for repair of extent to 3 PDTs in 16 centers from the United States and Europe, 
2008-2021. Results A total of 246 patients, 76% male, median age, 67 years, in interquartile range, 61 to 73 years, were treated for extent I, 7%, extent 2, 55%, and extent 3, 35%, PDTAS by FBFR. The median aneurysm diameter was 65 mm, interquartile range, 59 to 73 mm. 18 patients, 7%, were octogenarians, 212, 86%, were American Society of Anesthesiologists class greater than or equal to 3, and 21, 9%, presented with contained ruptured or symptomatic aneurysms. There were 917 renal mesenteric vessels targeted by 581 fenestrations, 63%, and 336 directional branches, 37%, with a mean of 3.7 vessels per patient. Technical success was 96%. Mortality and rate of major adverse events at 30 days was 3% and 28%, including disabling complications such as new onset dialysis in 1%, major stroke in 1%, and permanent paraplegia in 2%. Mean follow-up was 24 months. Kaplan-Meier, KM, estimated patient survival at 3 and 5 years was 79% plus or minus 6% and 65% plus or minus 10%. KM estimated freedom from arm was 95% plus or minus 3% and 93% plus or minus 5% at the same intervals. Unplanned secondary interventions were needed in 94 patients, 38%, including minor procedures in 64, 25%, and major procedures in 30, 12%. There was one conversion to open surgical repair, less than 1%. KM estimated freedom from any secondary intervention was 44% plus or minus 9% at 5 years. KM estimated primary and secondary TA patency were 93% plus or minus 2% and 96% plus or minus 1% at 5 years, respectively. Conclusions FBFR for chronic PDTAS was associated with high technical success and a low rate of mortality, 3%, and disabling complications at 30 days. Although the procedure is effective in the prevention of ARM, patient survival was low at 5 years, 65%, likely due to the significant comorbidities in this cohort of patients. Freedom from secondary interventions at 5 years was 44%, although most procedures were minor. The significant rate of reinterventions highlights the need for continued patient surveillance. Next article is from Surgical Endoscopy. Knowledge, Perceptions and Behaviors of Endoscopists Towards the Use of Artificial Intelligence-Aided Colonoscopy Background Recent developments in artificial intelligence, AI, systems have enabled advancements in endoscopy. Deep learning systems, using convolutional neural networks, have allowed for real-time AI-aided detection of polyps with higher sensitivity than the average endoscopist. However, not all endoscopists welcome the advent of AI systems. Methods We conducted a survey on the knowledge of AI, perceptions of AI in medicine, and behaviors regarding use of AI-aided colonoscopy in a single center two months after the implementation of Medtronic's GI Genius in colonoscopy. We obtained a response rate of 66.7%, amongst consultant-grade endoscopists. Fisher's exact test was used to calculate the significance of correlations. 
Results Knowledge of AI varied widely amongst endoscopists. Most endoscopists were optimistic about AI's capabilities in performing objective administrative and clinical tasks, but reserved about AI providing personalized, empathetic care. 68.8%, and equals 11, of endoscopists agreed or strongly agreed that GI genius should be used as an adjunct in colonoscopy. In analyzing the 31.3%, and equals 5, of endoscopists who disagreed or were ambivalent about its use, there was no significant correlation with their knowledge or perceptions of AI, but a significant number did not enjoy using the program, p-value equals 0.0128, and did not think it improved the quality of colonoscopy, p-value equals 0.033. Conclusions Acceptance of AI-aided colonoscopy systems is more related to the endoscopist's experience with using the program, rather than general knowledge or perceptions towards AI. Uptake of such systems will rely greatly on how the device is delivered to the end user. Next article is from Annals of Surgical Oncology. Impact of postoperative antibiotic prophylaxis on surgical site infections rates after mastectomy with drains but without immediate reconstruction, a multicenter, double-blinded, randomized control superiority trial. Background There is no consensus on the use of postoperative antibiotic prophylaxis, PAP, after mastectomy with indwelling drains. We explored the utility of continued PAP in reducing surgical site infection, SSI rates after mastectomy without immediate reconstruction and with indwelling drains. Patients and methods. A multicenter, two-armed, randomized control superiority trial was conducted in Pakistan. We enrolled all consenting adult patients undergoing mastectomy without immediate reconstruction. All patients received a single preoperative dose of cephalexin within 60 minutes of incision, and postoperatively were randomized to receive either continued PAP using cephalexin, intervention or a placebo, control, for the duration of indwelling, closed suction drains. The primary outcome was the development of SSI within 30 days and 90 days postoperatively. Secondary outcomes included study drug-associated adverse events. Intention-to-treat analysis was performed using multivariable Cox regression. Results A total of 369 patients, 180, 48.8%, in the intervention group and 189, 51.2%, in the control group, were included in the final analysis. Overall cumulative SSI rates were 3.5% at 30 days and 4.6% at 90 days postoperatively. PAP was not associated with SSI reduction at 30, hazard ratio, HR 1.666, 95% confidence interval C0.515 to 5.385, or 90, 1.575, days postoperatively, or with study drug-associated adverse effects, 0.529-0.196-1.428. Conclusions Continuing antibiotic prophylaxis for the duration of indwelling drains after mastectomy without immediate reconstruction offers no additional benefit in terms of SSI reduction. There is a need to update existing guidelines to provide clearer recommendations regarding use of postoperative antibiotic prophylaxis after mastectomy in the setting of indwelling drain.
Next article is from Obesity Surgery. Ruin why gastric bypass as conversion procedure of failed gastric banding, short-term outcomes of 1,295 patients in one single center. Purpose. Laparoscopic adjustable gastric band, LAGB, has high technical and weight loss failure rates. We evaluate here the one-year morbidity, mortality, and weight loss of laparoscopic RU-NY gastric bypass, RIGB, as a feasible conversion strategy. Methods Patients with a failed primary LIGB who underwent LURIGB from July 2004 to December 2019 were selected from an electronic database at our center. Patients had a conversion to RIGB at the same time, one-stage approach, or with a minimum of three months in between, two-stage approach. Primary outcomes included 30-day morbidity and mortality. Secondary outcomes were body mass index, BMI, percent excess weight loss, percent EWL, and percent excess BMI lost, percent EBMIL, at one year postoperatively. Results A total of 1,295 patients underwent a conversion from LIG to RIGIB at our center, 1,167 patients, 90.1%, in one stage and 128 patients, 9.9%, in two stages. There was no mortality. An early, 30-day, postoperative complication occurred in 93 patients, 7.2%, with no significant difference found between groups. Hemorrhage was the most common complication in 39 patients, 3.0%, and the reoperation was required in 19 patients, 1.4%. At one year postoperatively, the mean BMI was 28.0 kg M2, the mean percent EWL 72.8%, and the mean percent EBMIL 87.0%. No statistically significant difference was found between the groups. Conclusion Conversion to RIGB can be considered as a safe and effective option with low complication rate and good weight loss outcomes at one year. One-stage conversion provides the same early outcome as two-step surgery with a competent surgeon. Next article is from Journal of the American College of Surgeons. Leadership and Imposter Syndrome in Surgery Background Imposter syndrome is an internalized sense of incompetence and not belonging. We examined associations between imposter syndrome and holding leadership positions in medicine. Study Design A cross-sectional survey was distributed to U.S. physicians from June 2021 to December 2021 through medical schools and professional organizations. Differences were tested with the chi-square test and t-test for categorical and continuous variables, respectively. Logistic regression was used to identify factors associated with holding leadership positions and experiencing imposter syndrome. Results A total of 2,183 attending and retired physicians were included in the analytic cohort, 1,471, 67.4%, were in leadership roles and 712, 32.6% were not. After adjustment, male physicians were more likely than women to hold leadership positions, odds ratio 1.4, 95% C 1.16 to 1.69, P less than 0.001. Non-U.S. citizens, permanent resident or visa holder, were less likely to hold leadership positions than U.S. citizens, odds ratio 0.3, 95% C 0.16 to 0.55, P less than 0.001.
Having a leadership position was associated with lower odds of imposter syndrome, odds ratio 0.54, 95% C0.43 to 0.68, P less than 0.001. Female surgeons were more likely to report imposter syndrome compared to male surgeons, 90.0% versus 67.7%, P less than 0.001 an association that persisted even when female surgeons held leadership roles. Similar trends were appreciated for female and male non-surgeons. Imposter syndrome rates did not differ by race and ethnicity, including among those underrepresented in medicine, even after adjustment for gender and leadership role. Conclusions Female physicians were more likely to experience imposter syndrome than men, regardless of specialty or leadership role. Although several identity-based gaps persist in leadership, imposter syndrome among racially minoritized groups may not be a significant contributor. Low-impact laparoscopy versus conventional laparoscopy for appendectomy, a prospective randomized trial. Background Low-impact laparoscopy, LIL, Combining low-pressure insufflation and microlaparoscopy is a surgical technique that is still not widely used and that has never been evaluated for the management of acute appendicitis. The aim of this study is to assess the feasibility of Enlil protocol to compare postoperative pain, average length of stay, and in-hospital use of analgesics by patients who underwent appendectomy according to a conventional laparoscopy or Enlil protocol. Study Design Patients presenting with acute uncomplicated appendicitis who were operated on between January 1, 2021, and July 10, 2022, were included in this double-blind, single-center, prospective study. They were preoperatively randomly assigned to a group undergoing conventional laparoscopy, e with an insufflation pressure of 12 mm of mercury and conventional instrumentation, and in low group, with an insufflation pressure of 7 mm of mercury and microlaparoscopic instrumentation. Results 50 patients were included in this study, 24 in the LIL group and 26 in the conventional group. There were no statistically significant differences between the two patient groups, including weight and surgical history. The postoperative complication rate was comparable between the two groups, P equals 0.81. Pain was reported as significantly lower according to the visual analog scale two hours after surgery among the LIL group, P equals 0.019. For patients who underwent surgery according to the LIL protocol, the study confirms a statistically significant difference for theoretical and actual length of stay, E minus 0.77 days and minus 0.59 days, respectively, P less than 0.001 and P equals 0.03. In-hospital use of analgesics was comparable between both groups. Conclusions In uncomplicated acute appendicitis, the LIL protocol could reduce postoperative pain and average length of stay compared to conventional laparoscopic appendectomy. Next article is from Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Incidents, Outcomes and Costs of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock in Geriatric Trauma Patients, Analysis of 2,563,463 Hospitalizations at 3,284 Hospitals Background Severe Sepsis-Septic Shock, 
sepsis, is a leading cause of death in hospitalized trauma patients. Geriatric trauma patients are an increasing proportion of trauma care but little recent, large-scale, research exists in this high-risk demographic. The objectives of this study are to identify incidents, outcomes and costs of sepsis in geriatric trauma patients. Methods Patients at short-term, non-federal hospitals 65 years or older with greater than or equal to 1 injury International Classification of Diseases, 10th Revision, Clinical Modification Code were selected from 2016 to 2019 Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Medicare Inpatient Standard Analytical Files. Sepsis was defined as International Classification of Diseases, 10th Revision, Clinical Modification Diagnosis Codes are 6520 and are 6521. A log linear model was used to examine the association of sepsis with mortality, adjusting for age, sex, race, Elixhauser score, and injury severity score. Dominance analysis using logistic regression was used to determine the relative importance of individual variables in predicting sepsis. Institutional Review Board exemption was granted for this study. Results There were 2,563,436 hospitalizations from 3,284 hospitals, 62.8% female, 90.4% white, 72.7% falls, median ISS, 6.0. Incidence of sepsis was 2.1%. Sepsis patients had significantly worse outcomes. Mortality risk was significantly higher in septic patients, adjusted risk ratio, 3.98, 95% confidence interval, 3.92 to 4.04. Elixhauser score contributed the most to the prediction of sepsis, followed by ISS, McFadden's 2 South African Rand equals 9.7% and 5.8%, respectively. Conclusion Severe sepsis-slash-septic shock occurs infrequently among geriatric trauma patients but is associated with increased mortality and resource utilization. Pre-existing comorbidities influence sepsis occurrence more than injury severity score or age in this group, identifying a population at high risk. Clinical management of geriatric trauma patients should focus on rapid identification and prompt aggressive action in high-risk patients to minimize the occurrence of sepsis and maximize survival. Next article is from the American Journal of Surgery. Efficacy and Safety of Ilioinguinal Neurectomy in Open Tension-Free Inguinal Hernia Repair, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. Background There is still controversy surrounding routine ilioinguinal neurectomy in open tension-free inguinal hernia repair. Method PubMed Cochrane Library and base databases were searched for randomized controlled trials of ilioinguinal neurectomy and open tension-free inguinal hernia repair. Reevman 5.3 software was used for meta-analysis. Result Meta-analysis revealed that the incidence of severe pain on the first postoperative day was lower in the ilioinguinal neurectomy group, ING, than in the ilioinguinal nerve preservation group, INPG, P less than 0.0001. The incidence of no pain in the first month postoperatively, P equals 0.0004. The incidence of no pain in the six months postoperatively, P less than 0.00001. And the numbness incidence in the first month postoperatively, P equals 0.001. In the ING was higher than that in the IMPG. 
There was no significant difference in the incidence of severe pain in the first month postoperatively, P equals 0.20, the numbness incidence in the sixth postoperative month, P equals 0.05, the hypoesthesia incidence in the first, P equals 0.15, and sixth, P equals 0.85, postoperative months between the two groups. Conclusion Ilioinguinal norectomy and open tension-free inguinal hernia repair can better prevent postoperative pain. Next article is from World Journal of Surgery. Risk Factors and Management of Blunt Inferior Vena Cava Injury, a Retrospective Study. Background Traumatic Inferior Vena Cava IVC, injuries are uncommon, but the mortality rate remains high at 38 to 70 percent. To date, most studies on traumatic IVC injuries have evaluated blunt rather than penetrating injuries. We aim to identify the clinical features and risk factors that affect the prognosis of patients with blunt IVC injuries to improve treatment strategies for these patients. Methods We retrospectively analyzed patients diagnosed with blunt IVC injury over eight years at a single trauma center. Clinical and biochemical parameters, transfusion, surgical, and resuscitation methods, associated injuries, intensive care unit stay, and complications data were compared between survival and death groups to identify clinical features and risk factors of blunt IVC injury-related mortality. Results 28 patients with blunt IVC injury were included during the study periods. 25, 89%, patients underwent surgical treatment, and the mortality was 54%. The mortality rate according to the IVC injury location was the lowest for suprahepatic IVC injury, 25%, and equals 2 eighths, whereas it was the highest for retrohepatic IVC injury, 80%, and equals 4 fifths. In the logistic regression analysis, Glasgow Coma Scale, GCS, odds ratio or equals 0.566, 95% confidence interval, C 0.322 to 0.993, P equals 0.047, and red blood cell, RBC, transfusion for 24 hours, or equals 1.132, 95% C, 0.996 to 1.287, P equals 0.058 were independent predictors for mortality. Conclusions Low GCS score and high-volume-packed RBC transfusion requirements for 24 hours were significant predictors of mortality in patients with blunt IVC injuries. Unlike IVC injuries caused by penetrating trauma, superhepatic IVC injuries caused by blunt trauma have a good prognosis. Thank you for listening to This Week in Surgery, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead. Stay blessed and be humane.